You're there. I don't hear you guys. Let's see. Maybe I have the sound. Roger, go, but, keep one, but keep one hand on the wheel. We hear you. Can't hear us, Rick? Can you hear us, Rick? Now we I can barely hear you. Let me see. I'm going to pull over a little bit. Father, it is a little quiet. I've got my speakers up to 86% and you sound very soft. Let me see if I can move us closer. Okay. Huh. Everything seems to be right on my end. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. yeah. Great. Move you a little bit closer here. Oh, it's better already, Father. Well, that's, I'm standing right next to the mic. <laughs> oh. I just talk like this all day. No, don't. <laughs> that would be fun. That's a view of you that we don't want to see for very long. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's pray. <clears throat> In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who love us mankind. Well, set this down here. By divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the gospel teachings. Implant in us also, fear thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things that will pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God, and to thee ascribe glory, together with that unoriginate Father, that all holy, good, and life-giving Spirit, now and ever to the ages of ages. Amen. Um, all right. So, if my bookmark is correct, we are in chapter 4, verse 12. Mm -hmm. Just to give a, a quick review where we were last week, it was the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, which was preceded by his baptism. And so we have the first <laughs> words out of Jesus' mouth as he talks to John, and then as he's talking to the devil in the temptation. We haven't heard very much yet. That's about to change pretty soon here. So, if we could get someone to read chapter 4, verses 12 to 22. I will. Thank you. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulon and Naphtali that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Okay. Um, because we're starting with verse 12, you're not going to notice that there's a very abrupt move. So go back to, um, to the section before, and it was the, 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 um, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness with the devil. And before then, it was Jesus' baptism by John. And that section ended um, with hearing the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. So look at verse 12, and what is the abruptness of verse 12? As soon as he heard that, 
that John had been captured, he left the area. Yeah. So it, it but if you go back and read the whole book, there's no, no, there's no transition and, and John wasn't arrested. Now we're going to hear about it later. There's going to be a, in what we might call a flashback. We're going to hear about it later, but we haven't heard about it yet. But, you know, you think about whenever an author writes something, there's always a meaning to it, right? So in other words, he's not talking about the fact that John had been arrested. That's not the subject. That's a sort of like, that's the action that now is going to put into place something else, but he has to mention it because it's connected to the thing he wants to talk about. Does that make sense? So in other words, the only thing, the only reason why that John had been arrested can be important is not because of what happened, because we don't know, we haven't heard about it. It's what he goes into, right? So what, what is verse 13 talking about? What's, what's the reaction to verse 12 and verse 13? How, how does it flow? He left. Yeah. He went. He left, and he fulfilled the prophecy. Yeah, and how is that connected to twelve? Because if John's arrested, he can't preach anymore. So now it's time for Jesus. Okay. So put that together, and and what does that mean? There's a continuity. Correct. There's a connection. One is connected to the other. John being arrested is the event that's now going to trigger Jesus preaching. For his three years. Right. But did John get out this time or did he stay in prison for those three years? We're not going to hear about that until the flashback after he's been killed. Okay. So was he let out? Probably not. So this is probably the time he was arrested, as we're going to hear later on, because he criticized um, Herodias and the dog, the dancing, and the head on the platter, and all that stuff. Okay. Yeah. And Jesus had to go the other way. He couldn't go see him. He had to start his ministry. Right. Okay. In other words, there, there's a connection here. One is leading to the other. Okay. And that... Mean that message is going to be underscored when we get to verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Where have we heard that before in Matthew? When John forerunners said it. Exactly. Okay. So the same message that John was preaching, now that verse 12 is setting up this transition from John to Jesus. It's not a change. And this is a very fundamental point. That's why I'm, I'm kind of beleaguering it here. If we're going to understand Matthew as Matthew is telling us what he's telling us, we have to replace our old preconceptions with what Matthew is saying. And Matthew is saying when he, when he writes verse 12 that when, when John was arrested, Jesus withdraws to Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he goes to Capernaum. And then we hear the prophecy, we'll get back to that in a second. And then Jesus began to preach, and Jesus' words are word for word exactly what John had preached. So, assuming you know nothing else, and this is just a book you picked up, and it's a story you're reading, what can you infer about Jesus' preaching as it relates to John's preaching? Consistency, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What level of consistency? <laughs> Perfect consistency. Right. Yeah. It is the same message. Mm -hmm. It's the same message. And I bring that up because I think a lot of Christians are taught that there's a difference, that you have the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. And then you have a lot of others, maybe all of us are probably in this camp, 
that assume there's a difference based on either what we were taught or what our assumptions have been. Because our assumption is this is the New Testament. It's, it's Jesus's story. It's not the Old Testament. So we're going to see how the God that we find a little more um, palatable, he's a little easier to listen in the New Testament. And yet, if we're going to listen to what the book is saying, Jesus's message is exactly the same as John's, which was exactly the same as all the Old Testament prophets. So the message hasn't changed. Now, by the time the book is over, we're going to hear what has changed. That's Matthew's going to make it very clear what has changed. But one thing we know that has not changed is God's message to his people. And in, 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 in this part, the middle part of chapter four here, Matthew is, is going to great lengths to so, show us this is not new. The message that God is going to preach is not new. And he's also including the Gentiles, not just the Jews. Oh, you're giving away the ending. Sorry. <laughs> Way to go, Deborah. <laughs> that is going to be the major change. And we're going to see this unfold, but Deborah is right on. That's the major change. It's not the message. The major change is the recipients of the message. And remember I told you early on that the, the place of the outsiders is going to be really important. And we've already had lots of outsiders involved in the story. Who are some of the outsiders we've had involved in the story so far? Gentiles. Yeah, which ones? Who are the non-Jews or, or non-Jewish places even that have played a part in the story as we've heard it already? <clears throat> well, Galilee is the city of Galilee, isn't it? Yeah, yeah we'll, and we'll talk about that in a second. So Galilee's one, which is not Judea. It's not the area around Jerusalem. Um, let me refresh your memory. Go back oh. and check. Father, yes. when, they, when they escaped to Egypt. I yes. Mean, right? And one of the prophecies was, out of Egypt have I, has, have I called my son. Right. So even Jesus, the main insider, he is going to go outside and come back from the outside. But remember we talked about the wise men? Right. Coming from the outside. Uh, we talked about the wilderness being even though it's Judea, it's the wilderness. It's it's the place where not human institution rules, it's where God rules directly. Um yeah, at the end of chapter two, when Jesus goes to dwell in Nazareth, it says, I fulfilled by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Again, Jesus being associated not with the core of the central people. Um, angels coming in to give their messages. So keep keep an eye out for that inside outside kind of dichotomy, and and we'll just skip to it now because uh, this is an important place to say it. The uh, the prophecy in verses fifteen that are quoted: the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, toward the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So this is again it's not uh it's not judea it's not even just named as galilee it's they he's going to double down it's galilee of the gentiles mm -hmm. and what happens in galilee the gentiles the outsiders the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light and for those who sat in the region and shadow of death light has gone so that's really the main, this main thing is, is the inclusion of the Gentiles, the inclusion of all the non-Jews. That's the main change. However, the message to those people, even though the audience is expanded, the message is the same. If you ask most Christians, what's the gospel? They're going to say something 99 times 100 to the fact of 
Jesus has come to save us, and he paid the price, and he, you know, died for us on the cross. All of those are true, except they weren't the gospel that Jesus preached. The gospel that Jesus preached, we heard it right here, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' gospel is repentance. And you've all heard me preach about this a lot, that that's, that is the good news of the church, is repentance. It's not the, um, the good news is, is not that um, what you do doesn't matter. That's what I think a lot of people have misunderstood the good news to be. The good news is that we have time to repent. But Father, isn't that just the beginning of the good news? It isn't the yeah. whole good news, it's the beginning of the good news. Right, and so we're going to have to see how it plays out in Matthew. Like if we were just having a conversation, I'd say, yeah, you're right. But Matthew is going to correct for us any mistake of what we would call the good news. Because as Matthew plays out, you're going to see that that message really doesn't change. We'll have to go along with the story to find that out. Because I, I think you're right, Rick, and I think the assumption is that when the, the rest of the story comes along, that somehow that minimizes this message. And to say, well, now there's a higher message. And we're going to see throughout Matthew that that message is not going to change at all. It is going to be repentance beginning to end, and it's going to be um, the grace of God that's there what's it there for it's there for our repentance it's not there to nullify what we do it's there to uh to draw us into that repentance that he offers here in other words it's the beginning but it is it is also the completion and we'll see how everything fits into it it's all part of, of one message Because I, I think I think the assumption by a lot of people, especially certain Protestants, all Protestants, certain Protestants, is that Jesus's uh, work of salvation makes our actions uh, less important. And we're going to see how Matthew is going to not. If you read Matthew as what Matthew is saying, he's not going to let you make that mistake. Do we make we make that mistake all all the time? But if we read Matthew, what Matthew's saying, he's not going to let us get away with it. There's no, um, it doesn't matter what you do in Matthew. That's never Jesus' preaching. We'll see that as well. Right. So you're saying that some people believe no matter what you do, it's no problem? Oh, there are, there are certain Christians that that's their official teaching. Oh, my goodness. That, um, you know, this phrase, once saved, always saved? Yeah. So you're saved, and so it doesn't matter what. Now, they would say, of course, you want to do the right thing. That's fine. It's nice. But you don't need to because you've been saved. In fact, some Christians would criticize us because they say, are you saved? And we go, we don't know. They would treat that as a lack of faith. They would say, oh, you don't believe the scriptures. And they would pick and choose a certain verse here and there to support that teaching. We're going to look at Matthew, not just picking the verses. We're going to look at the whole book and say every verse has to fit into the rest of it, or else you're going to misinterpret it. Right. And we're going to see that that is not the message at all. It's the opposite. In fact, what Jesus is going to tell, especially when he's addressing the Pharisees, is you were not special because God chose you and made you his special people, his chosen people. You were chosen to live and serve the others. And when they don't do that, he's going to criticize them because they didn't do it. And so now that he's going to expand his people to include the Gentiles, again, the temptation might be, oh, well, now we're all part of God's chosen people. Now we're all special. Now we're all fine. Jesus' message is going to be the opposite. You're not in my special people. Be fine for yourselves. Now you're grafted into me and my family, and we exist to serve, right? So we're watching this great drama unfold on the world stage with uh, with Harry and Megan and all this. 
<laughs> and what you're seeing, and it's a great example, you're seeing two different versions of monarchy, right? So there's the queen looking like, um, oh, she's very demanding. And well, she's saying to rule is to serve. It's not what you get out of it. It's what you give. You're in the royal family in order to serve. And yes, there's perks and there's luxury and there's security and all this other stuff, but you're here to serve. And you're here to serve as you are told to serve, not as you choose to serve. I'm not criticizing Harry and Meghan. They have a different view, whatever. I'm not siding with either side. I'm saying that they have a different version of what that means. So what they say is we want to serve our way. We're going to go do it our way. Jesus is going to say to the Gentiles, you're now welcome into this royal family. In fact, St. Paul, St. Peter will say it very explicitly. He will say to his audience in his epistle, you are all part of a royal priesthood and a holy nation. In other words, now you're all on the inside. You're part of God's family. However, that's, that doesn't mean that you're now saved. It means now you must follow me as your head, as your leader. And where does he lead? Where does Jesus, if he says, follow me, where does he want us to follow him to? To the cross. To the cross. And not just his cross, right? We heard this last week. Right. <laughs> we follow him to his cross in order to pick up our cross. That's the chosenness. You want to join the chosen people? Welcome to the club. <laughs> pick up your cross. <laughs> That's going to be the message that Matthew is going to bring out for us. Uh, let's see. I want to bring up a couple quotes about this. In this first one, we don't know the author. It's another un, un, uh, anonymous quote. Um, but it really it addresses the idea of the arrest of John. And in some ways, it really addresses what we've been talking about here. Undoubtedly, John's arrest was permitted by God because no one can do anything against a holy man unless God permits him to. A sinner may perhaps do something against another sinner, for the sinner is not completely under God's care. Against a man of God, however, he can undoubtedly do nothing, for, quote, God is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Thus he says in another place, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's will. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So this idea of John's arrest is not under the category of sort of bad news. It's under the category of whatever you're going to see in this story, it's under God's allowance or God's way he's, he's God's care. So here's John being arrested, and we're going to find out later on in the story what happens when he's arrested. It's horrible. But even that ha happened under God's control. So nothing happens outside of that. So, Father, last week we were talking about Job, and um, that kind of what you're talking about reminds me of poor Job. I always felt sorry for him. But yeah. a man of God, and look what happened to him, poor guy. Yeah, and that—that's so. What's the purpose? Everything in the in the Bible has a purpose. Why would God want us to read Job's story? Is it just curiosity about Job? Why do you think the story is in the Bible? Well, I think that um, I personally think that it's to communicate with us that that um, sometimes bad things do happen to good people. I mean, Job was, as far as I knew, was was a, a pretty wealthy man, and and the devil said to God. Uh, of course he's, he loves you. Look at all the stuff you've given him. And, and um, God said, okay, do your best. And so Job was, uh, um, when he was tested, he showed that, that he loved God no matter how hard he was tested, kind of like Jesus did in, in, in uh, the desert in the last chapter of the last Bible study. Yeah, exactly. And so if Job is in the Bible, 
who's the audience that hears that story? The Jews. Yeah, or anyone who's in that community. In other words, us. Right. So Job is the Bible for us to read, and not just as a curiosity about Job. In other words, we're all going to suffer. Right. And when you suffer, you could make the mistake of saying, oh, God has abandoned me. And you could be surprised by it. You could go, well, of course I'm suffering. Look at Job. Look what he went through. And he didn't curse God. And in the end, he's blessed by that. So all of, of the scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, it's, again, it's not um, philosophy. It's not sort of a history or this is what's true. It is a instruction manual on how to live. So when we read Job, we shouldn't go, oh, that's an interesting story. That's fine. It is interesting. But why is it there? It's there to teach us how to live. And in this case, how to not confuse suffering with an abandonment by God. And then we're going to see this played out to the extreme when Jesus, who is the chosen one, who chapters one, two, and three have made really clear, like this is the chosen one of God. This is the one in whom God is well pleased. The son of man and the son of God in, in one person. And what's going to happen to him? <laughs> They're going to put him on the cross after beating him, mocking him, betraying him, all the rest. And he's going to say from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Right? Right. And then he's going to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What? Which again, if you don't understand or read the scriptures, you go, oh, isn't that terrible? Jesus was forsaken by his father. I've seen ordained ministers preach that sermon. That Jesus took on our sin to the extent that God himself couldn't even look upon him. And I'm thinking, were you sleeping <laughs> in your scripture class? Jesus was quoting scripture. We're going to hear that scripture quoted on Holy Friday. Not just in the gospel from Jesus' mouth. Uh, go back to, if anybody has the Old Testament, flip to Psalm the Orthodox Study Bible, it might be Psalm 21. I just get the numbering mixed up. That's the one, Father. Is it? All right, yep. so read the first couple of verses. Um, the first verse says, For the end concerning help in the morning, a psalm by David. O God, my God, hear me. Why have you forsaken me? The words of my transgressions are far from my salvation. Oh my God, I will cry out by day, but you will not hear me. And by night, but not for a lack of understanding in me. All right. And so if we were to read the whole thing, and you can look at it later on if you want. It's, it talks about how they can number all my bones. They're around me like wild dogs. You know, but by the end, read, read the last four verses. The, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all families of the Gentiles shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the master of the Gentiles. All the prosperous of the earth ate and worshiped. All going down into the earth shall bow down before him, and my soul lives with him. And my seeds shall serve him. The coming generation shall be told, shall be told of the Lord. And they will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born because the Lord made them. Does that sound like God is forsaking his people? Not at all. Okay, so if you don't understand scripture and you don't get the reference he's making, because he can't read the whole verse, he's having to stand up on, on feet with a nail through them to, to even draw a breath. You understand he's not forsaken by God. He knows that. And by the way, did you notice there? And I wasn't thinking about this. I asked you to read it. What are the what are the, what are we, what, word, what word did we hear three or four times in the first couple of verses? Read the first one again. Of those of those last four. 
the one that starts with the all the ends of the world, right? Yeah. yeah. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all families of the Gentiles shall worship before you. There's that word, the Gentiles. In yeah. other words, the Matthew's gospel is about the expansion of God's message and God's connection with his special people. Not just the Jews. It's everybody. It's the Gentiles. And there's Jesus quoting that scripture from the cross. So, um, well, I'm trying to think what the main point we're making here. Oh, the, the fact that you have to, God was not, Jesus was not forsaken. Jesus suffered, and Jesus knew he was not forsaken. Job suffered, Job knew he wasn't forsaken. We're going to suffer, and we're going to have to choose. Are we forsaken, or is God being as merciful as he always is? So all the scripture is there to teach us not just what's right and wrong, but how to live and how to do it. But do you think we handle suffering differently? Do we, or should we? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. We that, do. Well, scripture is going to tell you there's a right, there's the right way and the wrong way. It's going to say you can make the mistake of thinking you've been forsaken by God. Not forsaken. No. Okay. I, I would never use that word. Okay. But the suffering, some of us handle it better than others. But how does our interpretation of the suffering God's role in it, how does that change the suffering? That he, in spite of the suffering, he knows that we'll eventually come out of it and that we should not react that he has forsaken us. So, he hasn't. He's always there. Right. So if we suffer, and always with an understanding that it's happening under his provision yeah. for us, right. then as I said to many of you before, life, suffering is optional. I mean, suffering is not optional. Life's going to bring suffering. Misery is optional. Because misery is I'm suffering, and I've forgotten that this is under God's care. So we're miserable. You cannot be miserable and know God is caring for you at the same time. It's impossible. But we gotta learn. I for one have to learn that better. We all have to practice it. In other words, when we're miserable, to some extent, we are forgetting that God is caring for us. And the miserable, miserable. Sometimes you can make yourself miserable. Not the fear and worry. You can make yourself miserable with that, and sometimes. One cannot help but worry or fear. Matthew's not going to let you get away with that. <laughs> Matthew's going to tell us that according to Jesus, if we are fearful and worried, it is because we have refused to trust God. That when we trust God, there's no reason for it. And he's going to show us from beginning to end examples of what fear and worry do. And what you do when you're fearful and worried. And the ones that aren't fearful and worried, what they do. So keep an eye out for that. Because Matthew, that's one of the main things he's going to show us. Because it's not really about fear. It's about, do you put your faith in God? And if you do, fear doesn't make any sense. But I, but I don't agree with the forsaken part. That's, I don't think you're forsaking. I really don't. Does he forsake us a little bit? No. Is there a touch of our suffering that is just a little bit outside of his control? No. No. So if we can remember that. I, that's, I wouldn't use that word. I would not say, God, why have you forsaken? I would never say right. that. But we all say, why is this happening? Yes. Okay. And but what's maybe, the answer? And maybe Jesus said it and the others said it as a lesson to us, right? Mm -hmm. That we all suffer. It's just, I, you, I know he's always with us, but we're human and we get scared and something really scares us. Sickness, death, people. 
He's going to tell you if you're really human, according to as Jesus defines your humanity, there's no reason for the fear. The fear is the forgetting that God is caring for us, that whatever's happening is happening under God's care. And that's, yeah, it's hard. And so what's Matthew going to do? He's going to tell you the whole story to give you the inspiration. If you choose it to go, I don't have to be afraid ever again. If I'm afraid, it's not because life brought me hard things. It's because I'm forgetting what Matthew told me in his, in his gospel. So it's a good thing we're doing Matthew. It's a very good thing. It's a very good thing. Would you like to say even a redoing part of Matthew? That's okay. There's always more to get out of that. Okay. And that's going to be the tension. And I want you to watch how the different characters in the story are going to display that tension. All right? Let's flip to the end just to see, to see how this plays out in the whole story. Go to Matthew 28. Go to... Uh, let's see... Well, the very last verse. <laughs> no, I want to put out something else first. Almost the last verse. Go to verse 17. Right? You're three verses for the end of the story. All right? Well, I'll go to 16 so you get, the, you get the context. This is after the resurrection, by the way. So somebody read for us 16 and 17. <clears throat> Go ahead, Maria. You're muted. I'm mute, Maria. I can't hear you, Maria. You're muted. Sorry. I no said problem. They're still doubting. So read, read 16 and 17 for us. Okay. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Okay. So there it is. The the virtually the end of the story. All you have left is Jesus' final uh, instruction to them, which, by the way, as long as we're here, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. There's that extension to the outside, right? We'll see it beginning to end. So they're doubting that that's him? Well, it, it's, it's kind of confusing. They see him, they worship him, but some doubt it. <laughs> So we don't know what Okay. Go back to a few verses. Go to um So this is uh the women at the tomb, verse nine. Let's read nine and ten. <clears throat> this is the women coming from the tomb. As they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This idea, do not be afraid. He, in other words, he understands that fear is one of our most likely choices to make. He's not ignorant. It's not as if he doesn't know that we can get afraid. What he's going to tell us through the story is, if we're afraid, it's our choice and not putting our trust in the one Who's saying, don't be afraid. And isn't it interesting that the women got it? Yeah. Why is that interesting? <laughs> they didn't run away. Why is that interesting? <laughs> well, you'd think that the men who spent the most time with him would have gotten it. Great. And, and if you could say that in the 21st century... Yeah. Imagine how revolutionary it was in the first century. Mm. Have a story where the first witnesses were all women. And in fact, when the women went and told the men in the other, in the other gospels, the men don't believe them. In this gospel, we don't get into that detail, but we have him saying, go tell my brethren. They tell the brethren, they meet him there, and some doubt it. I would even say that that's part of this theme of the insider outsider. It's not Jew and Gentile, but it's about to be a follower of Jesus does not require any human strength, power, education, 
authority, money. There's nothing that makes you, uh, in any human sense, more likely to understand and trust Jesus. In fact, it's the opposite. The ones he's going to be hardest on are the religious leaders, and second to them, the political leaders, namely Herod and Pilate. He's also going to be a little bit rough on the rich. Not rough in a mean sense, but saying, like, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go to the eye of a needle. Why? Because you have human strength. If you have human strength and the assumption of protection, you're going to be not likely to place your trust in the God that you can't see. So if you're a man, you might say, well, I'm a man. I have manly strength, whatever. He goes to the women. He says, you're going to be the first. And then when the men don't believe, he's going to get mad at them. Why didn't you believe those who saw me? So there's no, there's never an excuse to say, well, it was hard. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> and he's not forcing anyone. He says, but if you want to follow me, it's going to be hard. You're going to suffer. But don't make the mistake of thinking. It's outside of God's care. Guys, I've got to go. I don't want to, I don't want you to think I'm leaving because of what you're just talking about. <laughs> I appreciate that, that women were the, were the first. One of the men is offended. Anyway. He's done. <laughs> Thank you, Rick. Nice to have All you. Right. Take care. Okay. See ya. See ya. Um, I want to go back and read something else about the preaching of Jesus. From the time when John was delivered, Jesus began to preach. For if he had begun to preach while John was alive, doubtless he would have belittled John, and John's preaching would have been considered superfluous compared with that of Jesus. As the light that rises at the same time with the lamplighter overshadows the lamplighter's grace. How wisely then did he begin preaching as John was accustomed to preach? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His intention was not to trample on John's teaching, but to confirm it all the more. For he were to preach while John was still teaching, he might seem to be intruding on John's mission. But now with John confined, he takes up John's teaching. There is no trampling, but confirmation. He confirmed John's teaching that he might point him out as a true witness. We don't know, that's another anonymous. Uh, let's see. Let's take a next quick section here. What's that? Chapter four. Let's see. Oh, we didn't talk about the end yet, did we? No, let's go back. Um, So verse 18, we've had Jesus um, now begun his preaching. And after he, he gives his first short sermon, every pet became of his hand. Now he's going to do something very um, important for us to understand. And it's important to understand that he does it from the beginning. So right after Jesus begins to preach, it says he walked by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter. And Andrew, his brother, cast into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. So it's a, it, again, look at the story as it unfolds. As soon as begin, Jesus begins to preach, he now does something else. What is he doing in verse 18 and 19? He's calling his disciples. Yeah. In other words, again, if you don't know anything about any preconceptions, what you have to say is that Jesus came to preach and very important because of prominence and where it falls in the story, he's going to call his disciples. We don't know that yet. We just know that he's calling people to follow him and he's calling them. So he will make them fishers of men. He's taking the analogy of their chosen profession as fishermen. And he's saying, you're going to do the same thing only in a very different way. You become fishers of men. He immediately left their left and followed him. And going off there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, 
and John his brother, and the boat was empty of their father, many their nets, and he called them immediately. They left the boat and their father and followed them. So just take it as the story. What is that? What does 18 through 22 tell us in terms of, of, of aspects of the story of Jesus? Well, in some ways, you could say that he's kind of like the Pied Piper. He came by and, and you know, told them what he wanted, and they all left and followed him. Yeah. Yeah, so his, his calling disciples is important, and they do it immediately. Right. Right. We have nothing. The story doesn't tell us anything about knowing him. Yep. But they may have heard uh, Father, they may have heard John speak. Right. Good point. Okay. So as the story goes, John speaks, and then Jesus comes on the scene when John is arrested. In other words, it's again confirming that John's preparation, remember the prophecy about John, that he would be the one. To prepare for the way of the Lord, to make his path straight. Um, that preaching of John prepares for the ministry of Jesus. And part of the ministry of Jesus is to gather now people that we're going to see later on. We don't know what they're what he's calling them to do, except for saying he's going to make them fishers of men. Um, and that immediately they call, when he calls, they follow him. So there's, again, the instruction for us. When God calls, you do it. You follow him immediately. And it's a strange thing. Like, you think about it. This man that they may know nothing about, he comes and he says, follow me. And they left their nets and followed him. What's the meaning of that? What's, what's the deeper sort of impression? You leave uh, your life, your earthly cares behind. Okay. Now, let's go back to the idea of worry and fear. What does that say about our typical worries and fears? They didn't have worries or fears. They trusted. They trusted, yeah. Now, they may have had them, but they dealt with them in a way that didn't stop them from following Jesus. In other words, it doesn't say, well, they thought about it. They went home. They put the nets away. They cleaned up everything. They put their affairs in order. It doesn't say that. He just left their nets and followed him. And going on there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boat was under their father, many of the nets. He called them. He immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. I mean, mm-hmm. in another story with another message, you'd say, well, aren't they awful sons? Could it have been, though, that Jesus was so special? That's all he had to say to them, and they trusted immediately. There's something there. We don't know what there's it is. Something. There's, there's something there in this man, Jesus, that we don't know much about, that he says, follow me, and people drop what they're doing and follow him. Yeah, absolutely. There was also that one apostle, too, and I can't remember which one, that said nothing good can come out of Nazareth that was doubtful about following right. him as yeah. well. So it's like the early ones dropped everything to go I mean this whole to me the entire thing about Matthew the worry is like a huge theme all the way through it because isn't Matthew the same book that talks about don't worry about what you put on and don't worry about what you eat and we're gonna have that in in another chapter or two yeah I mean it's always don't worry (laughs) yeah but don't worry and why why instead of worry what do you do you trusted the Lord Trust. trust. That's going to be, yeah, you're right. It's, it's a constant theme because the trust is the good news. Repent, change for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, trust that that's where you really want to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All good. That's what I thought. I know. Um, it's interesting which are the first four. Um, the key is I can the key is I can say essentially we're not changing anything. Alan, could you mute your uh, and if you were the conversation? There we go. Um, yeah, the first four here are all very prominent among the disciples. 
obviously you have Peter who will become the leader of all of them. Um, and James and John, we're going to see how Peter, James and John play a unique role, even among the other 12, the, the 12, the other nine, uh, Peter, James and John. And then Andrew, as we, we call him, Andrew, the first called. We'll see later on in another in a different gospel that Andrew is the first one that's called, and Andrew calls Peter. So you've got Andrew, Peter, James, and John as the first four. Share a little bit about that with you. This is from uh, St. John Chrysostom. And they left their nets and followed him. And yet John the evangelist says that they were called in a different way. So here's, here's the calling of John in Matthew, but now John has a different one. From this is it evident that this was a second call. One may conclude this from several evidences. For there it is said that they came to him when John had not yet been thrown into prison. And that is referencing uh, John chapter 1. But here it says that he was in confinement. There, Andrew calls Peter, but here, Jesus calls both. On the one hand, John says, Jesus saw Simon coming and said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. On the other hand, Matthew says that he was already called by that name, for he says, seeing Simon, who is called Peter. Um, accordingly, you now see Jesus finds them actually fishing, but he neither resisted them, at first, they desired to withdraw from him, nor having withdrawn themselves, did he go let them go altogether. He gave way when they moved aside from him and came again to win them back. This, after all, is exactly what fishing is all about. So he's going to compare and contrast John's account of the call of Andrew and Peter with Matthew's account of it, and he's pointing out the differences. But again, just like we've done, sometimes we compare different translations. Okay, what are the what, or different meanings? What is he? What, what, what's what Saint John Chrysostom's point is that Jesus is fishing. In other words, he's calling Andrew and Peter as fishermen and James and John, but Jesus is fishing them, and he's doing that by comparing the two different accounts of their calling. This is uh, from Gregory the Great, talking about when they followed him immediately. The kingdom of heaven has no price tag on it. It is worth as much as you have. For Zacchaeus, it was worth half of what he owned, because the other half that he had unjustly pocketed, he promised to restore fourfold. For Peter and Andrew, it was worth the nets and the vessel they left behind. For the widow, it was worth two copper coins. For another, it was worth a cup of cold water. So as we said, the kingdom of heaven is worth as much as you have. And that's going to be, again, a theme we'll see throughout, is that when Jesus calls, and we'll see this with one that we call the rich young man, what he is offering them is worth, St. Gregory is saying here, as much as they have. It's worth everything. It's, it's by no coincidence that Matthew has the gospel of the parable of the pearl of great price, where the man finds a pearl, he goes and sells everything to buy that field just to have that one pearl of great price. So it's worth everything. Questions or comments? Well, I have a question, but it doesn't relate to our study. All right. Well, no one's asked one that does relate. So yours goes to the top of the list. Okay. Thank you. This, I, whenever this uh, reading comes up, and it does all the time during Lent and other times of the year, and I, and I understand it to a certain point, why is it so wonderful to have somebody come and dump a bottle of oil on your head and have it drip all over your clothes? <laughs> when you don't have washers and dryers and there's dusty and all of that's going to, uh, you know, adhere to your clothing. I, I understand it in one respect, but I don't understand it in another. 
Which, which one about the pouring of the oil? Where, which one? Well, and it's like, like it's so wonderful, and it's dripping down on your beard and your clothes and all that. Uh, oh, oh. And, from last night service. Like, pardon? From last night's service. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's funny. I'll, I'll tell you a story. Our subdeacon is not on this morning, but our the candles in the altar um, use what's called liquid paraffin. Okay. Which is paraffin, but it doesn't solidify. Because that's why they always look kind of nice. The dangerous thing about it is if you spill it, it doesn't dry. <laughs> and it doesn't harden. Candle wax you can get out because it hardens. Um, liquid paraffin doesn't. We had a little bit of a, a liquid paraffin spill yesterday. Um, what what is oil, especially in the ancient sense of oil? What does oil do? Well, it's valuable, especially with the perfumed. It's very valuable. Yep. And they, I know they use it for anointing as we do in the church now. Yep. And what's the meaning of anointing? Well, okay. The um, Mary went in, poured oil on Christ, the expensive oil. And it was like, like she's like anointing him for his up and coming burial. Yeah. And I understand all of that. But I guess I'm thinking, you know, as the one that does laundry and the one that does all this stu other stuff, you know, why is it so important to like cover your whole body and all your clothes with it? And I really want to understand, I want to have a better perspective than this. You're thinking of oil as stain. Yeah. Father, you use oil when you are chrismating. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They used it when you, when they were embalming too. I mean, it's like a purification. Yeah, o oil is sort of liquid gold. It's it is valuable. It's healing. Healing. Honey is like your friend bites her. I don't see. If honey looks away, and she's about to bite me, honey looks away, and you. <laughs> um, yeah. Imagine how good that oil would feel on your skin, though. Um, I imagine you know they didn't have any lotion or anything. They used oil to on their skin. Yeah. Does anybody remember the uh, the lotion sermon? Yeah. Yes. Did you get any lotion during that? I did. All right. So what did that feel like? My hands were so cramped the day that you did that, and you. It was wonderful. It was healing. My skin was soft afterwards. And and, and, and as far as what Dad was talking about, the anointing, I don't recall hearing about dripping it all over people's heads, but when you bless us with the oil, it's healing. Yeah. It's a blessing. They, don't you do it for the sick people mm -hmm. when they're in the hospital or when you come to the house? Mm -hmm. And chrism when we are chrismated? Yeah. It's That's right, but he doesn't pour it all over our head and clothes. Yeah, but you're, you're thinking of it as, as staining, right? We live in a world of detergent and degreasers. Right. You know, this is a world where you wash your clothes by going to the river and, you know, right. you I know. River. And, right. you know, I, and I, I love it when we um, have unction and, you know, when I was chrismated, you know, on the I'm just about everything, but you know, but and 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 I really loved that. So I, I I'm not I under, I I wholly you know embrace it for that for the healing and for the cleansing. Yeah. But I guess I'm stuck on the all the other you know unpractical things because I live in in this culture, not that culture. Exactly, exactly. And so even, I'm trying to think of an example for us. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of how we get out of, the, out of the idea of oil as stain. Um, because something good comes out of it. 
Yeah, well, this is interesting. Um, you may not, have you all been to a consecration of a church? Some of you were at the consecration of St. Nicholas. Not everybody here was, but some of you were. Mm -hmm. So when you consecrate a church, the bishop takes a stick that has a big cloth. And in the old days, what they would do is they would soak that in chrism. Okay. Now they just put a little bit on it and he draws a little, sort of like how we anoint. We anoint when you get a little bit of oil on it across. Anointing in the old sense was pouring in and rubbing in, okay? So what the bishop does is they make a special cloth for him to wear for this part of the consecration. It's a big cotton cloth and he goes over his vestments. Then he goes around the church, that big stick, and he makes a big cross on every wall. Now why is he wearing that robe? Because in the old days, that big stick would have been dripping oil all over the place. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, I don't know what they did it here. Uh, Alan, do you remember at the consecration of St. Nicholas? Did they do anything with that robe? I don't recall the robe. I recall the, the stick and him going around and anointing the walls. So uh, what, what they often do to consecration is after that service is over, they take the robe and they cut it up and everybody gets a little piece. Hmm. Yeah. So okay. I'm trying to think of an example of like why it wouldn't be seen as a stain, it'd be seen as valuable. And that's one of the things that comes to mind is, okay. you know, um, if we coated our altar garments in oil, you wouldn't notice it as a stain. It's only a stain because part of it didn't get the oil on it. Right, right. right. Um, oh, here's another example. Do any of you armor all your cars? What? Do you use armor all in your car? No. <laughs> right, so Lynn does. Lynn, describe the armor alling of the car. It makes everything shiny. It makes it look new. Yeah. So it cleans it. It actually protects it. My car needs some armor alling right now. Yeah. Um, it protects all the, the surfaces. And the problem with armor all though is you've got to use it on everything, right? What happens when you don't put enough armor all on? Say that again. If you don't use enough of the armor all, what happens? Well, yeah, you'll see some shiny and some dull. Yeah. You got to put enough. On. Uh, here's another example for you. When you're polishing your furniture. All right, so you actually polish your furniture. What if you don't polish the whole thing or you don't put enough oil on the rag? Very dull. You get streaks, mm -hmm. right? It's when you have enough oil that you coat the whole thing, now it's good. Okay. My, my grandmother would love her lemon pledge, which is basically oil with scented lemon in a can, right? Put a pledge on everything. And I used to hate it. She taught me how to do it, and my hands would get all greasy. That was that oil coating yeah. everything. So yeah, you got to find some other examples of why the coating oil is actually good, not bad. Okay. The soul that that verse that you heard at at, at uh, Presanctified last night is the same verse that I quote every time I put my stole on. Blessed, I, I make the sign of the cross with the stole, and I said, Blessed is God who pours out his grace upon his priests, upon the beard, the beard of Aaron, which are down in the hem of his garment. In other words, that stole, the symbolism is the ongoing outpouring of God's grace. Okay. And then where do you, where do people interact with that stole? It's over your head in confession. Mm-hmm. Um, Traditionally, a couple would hold on to it as they go around the table at their wedding. Um, what? When you're the fringe, right? So uh, it, it's on your. It gets placed on you at, at, at uh, your prayers for healing. If you go to the monastery and you go to the unction service at every gospel reading, all the priests dis disperse, and everyone holds on to that. That's right. Stone. That's the mercy of God coming down and flowing out. Okay. So there's a few more images for you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> you got it. All right, Alan, thank you for sending us sunshine.
Yeah. Yesterday was 78 West Michigan. Thank you, muted. Hi, Alan. I heard it was very nice in, in Michigan this week. Yeah. When, what's the temperature down there? Uh, it's been in the 80s. Nice. It was 82 here yesterday, Alan. 82, wow. Yeah, I've heard. So who's down there with you? Uh, Jeff and Nicole and the kids and Brittany. <laughs> nice. We'll give them all our love. Will do. All right. Take care, everybody. Yeah. Thank Bye. You. Father, Bye. Bye, everybody. Thank you, Father. Yep. Uh, your, your microphone wasn't working.